Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Join the only roundtable podcast in compliance with five of the top commentators in compliance. Mike Volkov brings 35 years of legal experience. Matt Kelly is the founder and editor of Radical Compliance. Jay Rosen is Mr. Monitor, who knows his way around the culture of compliance. And Jonathan Armstrong, a partner at Cordery Compliance in London, rounds out this top group of compliance practitioners. Check out the rants and shout out at the end of each episode. Hosted by Tom Fox, the voice of compliance. Everything Compliance is a production of the Compliance Podcast Network. This episode, we have the quartet of Jonathan Armstrong, Jonathan Marks, Jay Rosen, and special guest panelist, Mary Shirley from Great Women in Compliance. Each panelist will give some commentary and then have shout outs and rants at the end. I know you will enjoy this episode of Everything Compliance. Hello, everyone. Welcome back to another episode of Everything Compliance. Today, we are thrilled to have our special guest panelist, Mary Shirley, who will join us. Uh, the lineup today will include Jonathan Armstrong, Jonathan Marks, Mary Shirley, and Jay Rosen. So, Jonathan Armstrong, uh, I would normally ask you what's on your mind, but there's lots of goings and comings out of the EU and the UK. Which would be the top one for you to talk about this week? Well, I think it is a tough choice, but maybe we'll talk about Luxembourg and what is the highest GDPR fine to date for Amazon. Now, it's a fine from the Commission Nationale Polar Protection de Donnais. That, of course, isn't a commission set up to protect everybody's favorite Osmond. It is a uh, the, the Luxembourg Data Protection Authority. And it's quite an interesting fine for a whole load of reasons. Firstly, because the Luxembourg Data Protection Authority have been one of the least active across Europe. They, um, they've had uh, no public GDPR enforcement in Luxembourg until June 2021. And now they appear with uh, an amount of money that's whopping in anyone's terms. We don't know that much officially about the case against them. It came to light because Amazon made disclosures to the SEC in accordance with its listing rules. And of course, this is becoming increasingly a way in which we're finding out about large data protection fines. Uh, You might remember that uh, British Airways and Marriott, uh, the fines there also became public knowledge through their filings. Um, We have, however, got some uh, intelligence from people we know close to this. Uh, I may or may not have got this right. I've had my ear to the ground for our listeners. And of course, if Amazon or the uh, CNPD are listening, we'll, we'll give them the right of reply if I've got this wrong. But it seems that the case arises off the back of a complaint made in uh, 2018 from Le Quadratudinet, which is a pressure group that we've talked about 
before uh, Paris-based who were involved in complaints principally against big tech operations. And significantly, they had this campaign not only against Amazon, but also against Apple, Facebook, Google, and LinkedIn. So we can expect to see, I think, investigations become public against those four as well. Um, but those four operate through an Irish regulatory system, so not, not aligned with this Luxembourg investigation. And it seems that the case was about advertising and about white space on Google being sold, possibly through the Google network, on the basis of preferences. Now, it's long been known that Amazon store people's preferences, and they've done that from the very start almost to suggest books that you might like. You know, if you've read the Tom Fox Compliance Handbook, then you might also like to read you know, War on Peace or a Jack Dempsey novel, and they profile people, or Mary's book, and they profile people and suggest uh, new things for them to read on that basis. But it seems that Amazon have gone further, and they've, if you like, rented the space in people's eyeballs on the basis of information that they've obtained against them. Now, as I say, this is uh, conjecture. This is the, this is me with my ear to the ground, but it seems that that's what the case is about. And Amazon seem to have said that they have legitimized that sale because of a contract with individuals. When you log on to Amazon, your uh, terms and conditions are put in front of you, and they seem to be suggesting that those terms and conditions allowed you to sell that data. And for those GDPR geeks, their, uh, their defense is effectively that they had a lawful basis under GDPR Article 6, open brackets 1, close brackets, open brackets, B, close brackets, if anyone's following and wants to look it up. Um, so, uh, so what happens next? Well, Amazon have said that they are going to appeal. That appeal is likely to take some time, eight or nine months. Uh, it'll go through the Luxembourg court process, which is relatively rapid compared with some countries for cases of this type. But there is the chance of a referral out to the ECJ. The ECJ is a European court. Somewhat confusingly, it's also based in Luxembourg, but it isn't a Luxembourg court. So that could delay things by about another three years. Meantime, of course, the, uh, the, the, the fines running out there as the largest ever. But perhaps more significantly, in addition to the fine, there are also some prohibitions. And we've talked about this before on everything compliance. In Italy, for example, the Italian regulators are quite keen on fining people and giving them a to-do list of improvements as well. That seems to have been the case here. And the uh, to-do list is effectively to stop doing the stuff we don't like you doing. And regulators have wide powers to make these orders under GDPR Article 58. But significantly here, we hear that CNPD have given Amazon six months to sort all of this out. And if they fail, there will be an additional daily fine of 736,000 euros per day 
for every day of non-compliance. So whether or not this gets overturned on appeal, it's a really significant case, I think. And it also tells us that GDPR isn't just about data security, that organizations have to be really transparent when they're handling people's data. And if they don't, big fines will follow. Jonathan, the facts of this case, uh, as you called it, I think, renting eyeballs um, of Amazon's customers out, is this so unique to Amazon that it really uh, would not set a precedent in terms of the fact pattern? Or is it it's the issue that you just concluded with that GDPR is not simply my personal identifiable information stored in a company, and it can be a wide variety of, of personal information? Uh, I guess it's a long-winded way of saying, is anybody else like Amazon? And would this set a precedent for any other companies? Yeah, I think it does. I mean, certainly, as I say, we know that the original uh, complaints from Le Quadratude uh, also point the finger at Apple, Facebook, Google, and LinkedIn. There have been another batch of complaints just today from NOYB, uh, a pressure group linked to Max Schrems, who we've talked about previously, who's also saying that a number of large um, newspapers also do this uh, eyeball rental. And, and that's quite an interesting new complaint. They're saying that effectively, organizations like uh, newspapers give people the option of ad-free subscription or ad-included free reading of a limited number of articles, for example. And they say that that can't ever be informed consent because the cost of paying a newspaper is prohibitive for some. You know, if you look at the costs of some of the US publications that have paywalls, for example, they're saying that's, a, if, if you like, an unfair uh, bargain. So there are, there are going to be all sorts of ramifications for this judgment, I think, because all sorts of organizations have relied on uh, the uh, e either consent or contractual basis to legitimize all of these ad practices and all of this selling of data in the ad ecosystem. And I think this judgment gets to the very heart of that whole infrastructure. And maybe one last point. Uh, Just very quickly, cookies, of course, are also in the firing line. That's all related to this ad tech stuff. A whole host of other complaints from NOYB, possibly about 550 uh, are on their way to regulators. So lots of this litigation to come. Uh, Jonathan, the uh, CEO of the Compliance Podcast Network just texted me and he said, uh, you may expect a call for uh, Cordery to uh, be retained on behalf of the CPN on this matter. Um, <laughs> So, Jonathan Marks, you have been thinking about your profession of internal audit, but what have you been thinking about over the past couple of weeks? Well, Tom, you know, times are a little bit different now that we're operating in sort of this remote hybrid environment. And what I'm thinking about uh, probably more than, than I should be is internal investigations and internal auditors. Um, and one of the things that I keep noticing is that and we keep getting more and more inquiries into is that, you know, when should 
internal audit really step away from an investigation and how should they be involved? And, you know, if they're triaging an allegation, who should be involved in that process? And, or if you're conducting an internal audit and you find something that could be, you know, akin to um, a potential fraud, you know, what should you do? And I just don't think there's a lot of guidance out there related to this. I think there's, and, and what winds up happening is you could wind up having internal audit literally corrupt an investigation by continuing forward. Um, a lot of times there's not communication between the general counsel and internal audit. There could be some, in, there could be some investigation already ongoing, which internal audit doesn't know about, and they could be bumping into one another. Um, but I just think after really thinking about this for a couple of weeks and really looking at the landscape and the environment that we're living in right now, um, you know, obviously communication is tantamount to something that's, you know, uh, you know, for any organization to be effective, but one of the, I just, there's not a lot of guidance out there for internal audit when it comes to, you know, either triaging an allegation or actually running through, um, you know, a situation or, or some type of simulation when it comes to, um, you know, uh, issues that crop up or an investigation type of activity and when they should actually serve and depart and let, you know, outside investigators take over and when they should actually, you know, and what role they should play, you know, going forward. Jonathan, uh, wow. Okay. Um, so for those of you listening at home, you're seeing me hold up a copy of the Compliance Handbook Second Edition, where I quote Jonathan Marks on triaging your uh, whistleblower reports and then internal investigations. But I've never heard you talk about who should be on the triage team. Are you now kind of rethinking that you need to have a broader triage team? Because as I understood what you advocated before, it was to uh, a triage is really important, but also the speed of the triage is important. So you get the issue to the right people. Has Have you kind of rethought that? Well, I, I don't know that I've rethought it. I, I think I keep thinking more and more about you know, kind of what you just talked about, Tom, you know, sort of the speed of all of this and the importance of a timely investigation and the importance of actually kind of cabining in those issues or ring fencing in those issues and getting to remediation quickly. Because we all know that, you know, one of the key things from either a regulator's perspective or, you know, you know, or anyone from an outside looking in is, you know, not only identifying those issues, but how quickly those issues really come to a point where you actually start the remediation process may not be as fulsome as it might be at the end of the investigation because you're, you're seeking to understand throughout. But, you know, I take a look and I look at some of the folks that are involved in these in, in triaging these allegations, you know, and in, in a lot of cases, it's compliance, which it should be. In a lot of cases, it's compliance, you know, in the general counsel's office. A lot of a lot of times it's senior you know, members of senior leadership. Um, you know, I, I think that that's fine, but I think in some instances, I think it's really important to get internal audit involved. You know, that, 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 the sort of the, the, the general counsel, the compliance officer, the compliance function <clears throat> and internal audit to me are those three areas again in the enterprise ecosystem where if you're not communicating and you're not talking, you know, their odds are something could slip through the cracks. So, I, I guess maybe I am really thinking more about, you know, the triage process and thinking more about the investigatory process today. Um, the other thing I will tell you is that internal auditors are not trained in some instances to deal with a lot of the issues that are being faced, you know, that, that are coming forth today. So, 
you know, again, you want to put, you know, the right foot forward here, but you never want to have an investigation tossed out because of lack of credibility or lack of independence. And the lack of credibility really comes from just not having the right skill sets of the people on the investigatory team. So, you know, it kind of, it kind of made me, you know, over the past couple of weeks, it kind of made me sit back and say, you know, maybe it's now time to have and put out some real true guidance for internal audit. Um, and, and that would include compliance in the general counsel's office as well on how they should be functioning and how an investigation when it launches from the very beginning, from it maybe, you know, it's a whistleblower complaint or something coming through from the hotline, who should be involved. But, you know, at what point does internal, you know, what role should internal audit take, if any, um, you know, how, you know, and, and what role should everybody else take, you know, with regards to the investigatory process? Because, you know, again, sometimes, you know, sometimes having the general counsel's office involved in an investigation is not wise either, depending on, you know, what the nature of the issues are or compliant or having compliance involved in an investigation might not be wise, depending on what the nature of the issues are, just to preserve that level of independence. A couple of years ago, pre-pandemic, I was speaking in Paris and a compliance practitioner posed the following question, which was, when is the government going to release guidance on how to do investigations? And for me, that spoke to the difference between a civil law-based society and a common law-based society, where in the civil law, you have much more structured approach. But I'd like to perhaps ask our other panelists, who I think have gone through investigations, uh, number one, you always could do more in investigation. It's always a trade-off of time and efficiency. But doesn't that decision really come down to your own professional expertise uh, within the, the confines of your investigation protocol? Do, uh, do either of our, any of our other panelists really have any thoughts on that? Yeah, I mean, I, I, I think you're right, Tom. I think that uh, obviously you can't, you can't boil the ocean and no reasonable regulator expects you to. But you've got to have a proportionate response. And as you said, you've got to have a proper investigation plan. And there might be times when you need to share that with agencies and third parties as well and agree that structure in advance. Yeah, I agree with you all. Um, the other term apart from boiling the ocean for me is that, you know, you can't turn over every stone. Um, it, it needs to be proportionate as with everything in compliance. For me, it comes down to feeling reasonably assured that I have the information and findings that can be justified or defended should my investigation come under scrutiny from others. Uh, occasionally, that might mean getting a second opinion. Um, you feeling like you're doing something, uh, you may want to get a, a second set of eyes on it. But I think there are also a lot of other circumstances. So, for example, a company that is under a monitorship uh, that has already been in trouble is probably going to want to be a bit more robust than um, a small company that doesn't often have uh, a lot of risk, hasn't had a lot of problems, regulatory issues, government scrutiny potentially they may feel more comfortable doing a little less in an investigation compared with a company that's already been burned. So I think there are a few circumstances to consider which may direct the extent of your investigation. But whatever your circumstances, at least from my perspective, I want to be in a position where I can say I did all that was reasonably necessary and, and I feel comfortable with that and be able to show with your documentation, your investigation plan, exactly what you did if it comes down to it. 
Gusto is sponsoring this podcast, and I hope you will listen to a message from our sponsor, Gusto, for you get to Jay Rosen's commentary on this episode of Everything Compliance. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Jay Rosen, what's been on your mind? Thanks, Tom. Last month, my AMI colleague, Dion Lomax, and her colleague, Mince's Joe Miller, shared some thoughts about how the Biden administration may approach antitrust matters on the AMI Integrity Through Compliance podcast. We're now six months into a new administration, and all eyes are on 1600 Pennsylvania Avenue and on the Hill to determine what changes President Biden may make or encourage Congress to make regarding antitrust enforcement. Thus far, we've heard rumblings of the federal ban on non-compete agreements in the employment context, and we've seen proposals for new legislation like the Competition and Antitrust Law Reform Act that was proposed by Senator Klobuchar. Companies may need to know how to prepare for changes in antitrust enforcement and how any new antitrust legislation may impact them. What changes, if any, do we anticipate the Biden administration making in terms of antitrust enforcement? The only change we can sort of moderately, confidently predict is more change. So we think there's going to be more enforcement. There seems to be a lot of enthusiasm, both with the administration and also on the Hill. And antitrust is kind of having its own political moment. Enforcement agencies can influence law by their case selection and by the policies they announce and the cases they investigate. And so they're very influential, but they're not lawgivers. And Congress kind of stays out of the way. The law is, you know, relatively settled. It changes over time, and academics have an outsized influence because it is a common law process and they can influence judges with their writings. Now we're seeing a lot of political tumult, and so it's really an uncertain time in antitrust. So what we're seeing is a commitment to do more of it, and it's a bipartisan commitment to do more of it. And if you've got the administration saying what they want, and you've got Congress saying that there should be more of it, and again, not politically completely aligned except directionally, both Republicans and Democrats think that there should be more enforcement. So we'll see. So we think you'll see more. Biden has three significant appointments to make, and he's made one of them already. And so right now, in terms of making any accurate predictions going forward, it's still too early. But we've got definite signals. There's two strong signals that we've seen. The first one, at least in time, was the appointment of Tim Wu, who's a professor at Columbia University and has written extensively on antitrust and how it should be more involved in going after big tech and more expensive, more expansive in the type of conduct that it catches. He's an influential thinker and has written extensively about this. And the fact that he's now a White House advisor, we think, is a strong signal. 
Following up on that, President Biden appointed Lena Khan to the Federal Trade Commission as soon as he got confirmed, like within hours, and he named her to be the chair of the FTC. Linda Kahn is 30 year, 32 years old and has been wildly influential in changing the discussion in antitrust and changing the p political uh, format. She wrote a law review note that is the paper that some students write while they're in law school. And her law review notes are, although law review notes are typically not influential, they're typically quickly forgotten. But she wrote one about how antitrust is really not up to the task in its current formation of dealing with what she thinks as monopolies in the tech center, the sector rather. This was in 2017 and 2018, so not really long ago. And then she had a series of policy-oriented jobs. She worked for a pro progressive think tank, the Open Marxist Institute, and she was an attorney advisor to one of the current administrators or other current commissioners, Rohit Chopra at the FTC. She worked on Capitol Hill for the Antitrust House Committee on Antitrust Subcommittee, and she was very involved in the now famous tech report, and she became professor at Columbia University. She couldn't have been there that long before she got this appointment. Even if you disagree with a lot of what she has to say, you have to appreciate the amount of influence that she's had in a very short amount of time. So you've got these two nominations, including the not chair nomination to the FTC. However, there's about to become another FTC spot open, and they've got commission works as the five presidentially appointed commissioners. They've got staggered turns. One of the commissioners' term is up, Rohit Chopra, and he's very progressive, and he's going to be where he's going to be non nominated to the director of the Consumer Protection Financial Bureau. So there's going to be an open seat right now, and the commission is split at 2-2 along party, party lines. Although we don't typically think of antitrust in partisan terms, when we say a split, we think there's two commissioners who we'll call progressive and are relatively expansive in how they look at antitrust laws. And then there's two who happen to be Republicans or more traditionalists. You need three votes to get something out of commission, and that's now split at two, two. So whoever that other appointment is going to be, you know extremely important to the commission looks over the next few years. If it's a Democrat, but somebody with relatively traditional views, I think of Bob Petrovsky in the 90s. He was a professor at Georgetown who wrote a well-used textbook, understood the law and policy really well, and had written a lot of influential articles. He was not looking to expand the antitrust beyond what the case law had provided for, and he may have wanted to push it in one direction or another may have wanted to set some precedents about how existing laws should be enforced or interpreted, but really within traditional bounds. The FTC is split between its consumer protection mission and its competition mission. On the competition side, there's somebody who sits on top of that bureaucracy who comes in for two, three, or four years and then leaves. And they're typically a very accomplished antitrust lawyer who either comes out of the private sector sometimes academia, but usually run the competition program day to day. If that person is sort of more of a functionary, you get typical stuff. If they're more of a visionary, as the person could be, they would be something else to watch for, somebody who could sort of take a more expansive view, because we think the staff that's there has been used to enforcing the law as it exists, given by the courts, by Congress, and by Congress, but over the last 100 years. 
In the midst of all this, you have companies that are still trying to do deals, still trying to push ahead with their strategic objectives. Given the state of the appointments, both at the DOJ and the FTC, should a company hold off on their M&A and joint venture activity? What should they do if they have transactions currently pending before the either agency? If Joe Miller was advising such a company and looking to thread the needle, he would say, get your deal done as quickly as possible when you don't know what those other appointments are going to be. You've got Rohit Chopra about to rotate off the commission and you have a 2-2 split and you've got somebody in change in charge of the antitrust division who's a career criminal enforcer. And so it's not going to be looking to do anything really innovative here in the merger space. So now's probably a good time compared to what could be later. But back to our initial question, companies may need to know how to prepare for changes in antitrust enforcement and how any new antitrust legislation might impact them. If these appointments wind up being relatively traditional appointments, you know, fine, it shouldn't make much of a difference, but you don't want to be released as a company. A company wouldn't want to be in the position of being the new test case to try out a new theory. It's just, as a practical matter, it winds up being expensive. So as you're looking for new ways to think about the law, there's no guideposts and there's nothing you can turn to. It takes a lot of extra discovery, a lot of creativity and part of everybody, and all that costs money. Obviously, you do not want to put your deal at risk. So when should you complete your transaction? Now's good. Later may be good or not so good. But if we were betting, we'd say try to get it done quickly. Tom, back to you. And Mary Shirley, once again, welcome to Everything Compliance. We wanted to have you on our pod for some time, and we're thrilled to have you. But uh, what has been on your mind recently? Thank you so much to you all for having me. It's such a delight to be here as a guest. So today I wanted to talk about Activision Blizzard, which is one of our topical cases in compliance at the moment. And just as a bit of a recap, um, I'll, I'll explain. This is about a lawsuit that alleged a frat boy culture and misogynistic treatment of women in the workplace. That was followed by an imprudent email to staff from the chief compliance officer who essentially said that um, the lawsuit is based on um, unfounded and untrue allegations. Um, the problem with this is that she's probably telling the people who made the allegations that they are untrue. She then doubled down um, shortly thereafter with a Twitter post, uh, which again, I would I would say was imprudent. Um, and it was about the problems with whistleblowing. She then proceeded to block colleagues who disagreed with her. And uh, she was very heavily criticized by the general public on Twitter and that followed with her deleting her Twitter account. In the latest news, uh, Townsend has stepped down from her role as executive sponsor of the Activision Women's Group. Uh, so that's probably a prudent uh, step in the circumstances. Also, I can see that there is a senior director of ethics and compliance position currently being advertised at Activision Blizzard. So if you are interested in turning around culture, this is an opportunity for you. My favorite quote um, that, to be fair, it may be a template. It may be what they usually put in their job postings. It states, Priorities can change in a fast-paced environment like ours. So this role includes, but is not limited to, and then proceeds to list the job responsibilities. I think we can 
uh, be reasonably assured that uh, some cultural change management initiatives may become added to that list in the very near future. And I just wanted to comment for a moment about Townsend in this particular CCO role. And, and the question that I have is, why was someone who seemingly does not have ethics and compliance experience given the senior most mantle in the ethics and compliance department? She has recently said that the email that went out from her was edited so severely by the general counsel that it wasn't even her voice by the end of it. This is a striking example of why compliance ideally should not report into legal, why we need people with ethics savvy and understanding of reputational risk, including social media sensitivity awareness. They also need a backbone, being able to assert themselves when a problem occurs. In this case, it would seem that sound judgment from an ethics and compliance perspective was missing. And I have to ask, would, would Activision Blizzard be in this situation if they had hired as CCO someone who is well-known and well-established with a very strong track record in ethics and compliance? Perhaps that decision would mean that the company would be in a very different position today. And finally, Latest update on this case, in the news in the last 24 hours, there have been reports that contractor staff in the QA developer type positions are alleging a broader toxic culture, including low wages and long hours. So it seems this is the case that's going to keep on giving for a little while longer, and we need to watch this space to see what the saga will bring next. Jonathan Armstrong, any comments or observations? Yeah, I mean, I I certainly agree with all of that. Um, what one thing that I'd be interested in your view on, Mary, is uh, we've two breaking news stories. So every Friday, there's a a legal journal in the UK that tends to publish stories, and there's two pretty shocking stories uh, today concerning law firms. One alleging that one global law firm has the same sort of frat boy culture, as you've discussed, which has led to the marginalization and worse of female members of staff, including it is alleged contributing to the death of a female partner. And then a second, not to trivialize it, but but perhaps less, um, less pernicious uh, 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 story about a, a law firm that uh, where there's a somewhat salacious video circulating of a of a what seems to be one of the firm's senior partners having sex in a ground floor office with an open window with a junior member of staff. I mean, do, for a, a, a compliance officer, do they also have to look at who they associate with as well? So, in your position. If you're, you know, if one of your law firms, or it doesn't have to be a law firm, one of your suppliers also features with this type of culture that's toxic, does the CCO have to review those relationships as well? Yeah, that's a really interesting question, Jonathan. The first observation that I would make there is when you were telling me those stories, um, they were incredibly familiar to me because New Zealand has had almost the exact same situation. One of the times in the last few years that I was home um, visiting, um, my mum and I were watching TV and just were falling about ourselves laughing 
um, at some of the mismanagement um, in a particular law firm. What was not so funny was that there had been a long historical culture of sexual harassment of women. There was also another case in New Zealand that was, uh, this goes back many years when I was still living there, um, where a couple of staff were caught on camera um, engaged in um, sexual activity by patrons of a pub across the road. And that um, that went public very quickly, as you can imagine. Uh, one of the partners was um, married to somebody else. Um, and so it sounds like this this kind of thing happens all over the world. We're never really going to be able to prevent for this. It's just, it's human nature. Um, the, the problem with looking at who people are associating with can be tricky. Sometimes relationships come about where you think you're dealing with someone who is of excellent moral character, and then it transpires as the relationship progresses that you learn their true face. And that's kind of the point of dealing with um, sort of psychopaths in the office, right, is that it's the people who come across essentially as being the most charming. They end up being promoted. They have excellent interpersonal relationships. But what's under the veneer may not be revealed into, until too much later. So I think there is a, a certain point at which we would consider that looking at relationships uh would be important, but it wouldn't be the be all and end all because people don't always reveal their true colors. And I, I think it's unfair to punish people for, you know, not realizing until it's too late in certain circumstances um, or judging them too harshly um, for associating with those of ill repute if that ill repute has not yet been discovered. Mary, I'd like to pick up on the last point you raised on your uh, opening remarks. And that's new allegations of um, toxic workplace. But the allegations were around uh, low pay and uh, very long work hours. Uh, that's not typically something that I've heard uh, of that a compliance officer needs to be uh, aware of or in those discussions. But the way you raised it, it was almost a continuation of the toxic culture mm -hmm. uh, from mm -hmm. Activision. And so uh, do these new types of toxicity that we may have uh, accepted in a workplace need to be reconsidered from the compliance perspective now? Yeah, I think so, Tom. And this brings up something that I've been thinking about a lot recently, which is essentially, you know, we call ourselves ethics and compliance. But of course, the full boundary in terms of what actually falls into ethics is not every single unethical matter. For example, in most cases, if you were having an affair with someone, your company is not going to form judgment on that and, and take any kind of action about it. Um, of course, the difference in the case that the cases that Jonathan and I just spoke of were that it was happening on company premises, which is not what company prem premises often should be used for. Um, so when it comes to this topic, I think we're seeing very much an evolution in compliance where we've gone from regulatory compliance um, towards ethics, integrity, reputational risk as being things that are now falling more squarely under the compliance officer's portfolio, but it's not clearly defined a lot of the time. And so there is in some respects a slippery slope for us to deal with. And uh, I'm, I'm not 100% sure where we'll land. I think my position is that uh, HR functions, for example, do not have a second line of defense a lot of the time. And so it may make sense for compliance to take more of a formal stance 
when it comes to reviewing HR matters, potentially such as what's being alluded to here. I think the other thing that comes into this beyond the continuation point or the continuum point, which is what you had correctly mentioned is why I wanted to bring this one up, is also the fact that potentially this kind of thing can fall into reputational risk, which compliance officers will start to take more of an interest in. So for example, when it comes to employees saying um, that essentially it's slave labor that, that that the situation is or that they're being paid below minimum wage. That type of thing we may 10, 20 years ago have said, okay, that falls squarely under HR. But now what I think would be more likely is that compliance departments would take more of an interest and say, hang on a second, once this starts making the news, that's our reputational risk as well. Um, and could this fall under another compliance area, potentially um, some of the ESG concerns, which are, you know, that sort of um, corporate social responsibility aspect. That, again, is an area that's not so clearly defined, but is starting to be put under the compliance portfolio. And so we have this nebulous area starting to come about where traditionally subjects that may not have been compliance often would have been HR issues are now starting to fall between both of them. And so the question becomes, to what extent should compliance be taking a grasp of these issues? And if they do decide to, to what extent will they have to work with HR and uh, separate the roles and responsibilities and divide up that work? And now we will move to shout outs and rants. All right. Well, now we are on to fan favorites, rants, and shout-outs. So I've told everyone to bring their A game. I assume they have followed those uh, precise instructions. So we will take uh, the same order with Mr. Armstrong. What is your rant and or shout-out this week? Well, mine's a shout-out, and it's a, a little more sobering than normal, for, for which I apologize. Um, but I can't let this podcast go without uh, talking about what turned out to be last night the worst mass shooting in the UK since 2010. Now, by some country standards, uh, the numbers aren't uh, severe. Uh, there were six dead, but they included a three-year-old girl and the uh, assailant himself. But I sort of want to shout out to those who run towards danger rather than from it. This was a tremendous response from the emergency services in this uh, in, in in Plymouth, the part of UK where this happened. Four air ambulances were almost immediately on station, including, of course, three who don't serve the area in question. Within six minutes, armed response officers were on scene, and as some of you know, not every police officer in the UK. Uh, carries uh, uh, weapons, and that's very much a specialist role still. And these people ran towards danger rather than away from it. And they knew that there was a man walking the streets with a shotgun shooting everybody he saw. So um, uh, it's a shout out to those who ran towards that incident and thoughts and prayers to those who are still in hospital as a result. And that was going to be my rant over for today. But just as we went on air, uh, Tom, I got an email from a colleague and a friend who is one of those people who runs towards danger. He's a volunteer ambulanceman 
And I just wanted to read uh, the email that he just sent about how his year has been. He said, it's been a pretty hideous year. With so many people isolating, there's been a huge demand on limited resource. Uh, COVID was so awful in January to March. I have never had such horrible experiences. People literally dying on me. COVID has thankfully reduced in terms of 999 calls, what you call 911 calls. Those we do go to now are almost universally younger people who have not had the vaccine. So many 30-year-olds who decided they thought it was a hoax and now in intensive care and dying. Pregnant mothers, too. We're not out of this yet. So it's a shout out, a somewhat sobering shout out to those who run towards danger, those who give up their time to help out others. And a plea that I think Matt made so eloquently on our last broadcast, if you've not had the vaccine, go out and get it now. Jonathan Marks. Well, I don't know. That's pretty tough to follow, but I'll do my best. You're going to have to bear with me because I'm kind of trying to set this up a little bit here. People will come, Ray. They'll come to Iowa for reasons they can't even fathom. They'll turn up your driveway, not knowing for sure what they're doing. They'll arrive at your door as innocent as children, longing for the past. Of course, we won't mind if you look around, you'll say. It's only $20 per person, emphasis added there. You'll pass over the money without even thinking about it, for it is money they have they have, and peace that they lack. And they'll walk out to the bleachers, and they'll sit in shirt sleeves on a perfect afternoon, or in this case, an evening. They'll find they have reserved seats somewhere along, uh, somewhere along the baselines where they sat and when they were children and they cheered their heroes. And they'll watch the game. Well, maybe some will, maybe some won't. And it'll be as if they dipped themselves in magic waters. The memories will be so thick, they'll have to brush them away from their faces. Let me tell you something. Major League Baseball, you blew it. You absolutely blew it. And if the executives are listening to this podcast, I'm going to tell you again, you blew it. You choked. You had a golden opportunity. You had the Yankees playing on the field, the dreams field that was built, and you had blackout situations where people couldn't watch the games. You know, I, I read the newspaper articles. I understand, you know, what happens from a TV production perspective. But don't tell me in this day and age you couldn't have figured out some way, somehow, something better to broadcast that game. I don't care who's playing. It was pretty darn nostalgic, and I'm pretty upset that I wasn't able to see it. So, th so thanks, Major League Baseball. You ruined it for me. Jay Rosen, do you have a shout-out and or rant for us today? Tom, I've got a shout-out today, and it's to all the DOJ attorneys, as well as the state AGs who spoke truth to power and kept our fragile democracy from almost being swept away and replaced by a fascist nightmare. Every day, it seems, there are new revelations about horror stories of how the former president desperately tried to hang on to the presidency and steal a second term. While I would have preferred knowing about these treasonous acts in real time, I am awed that we are the beneficiaries of these individuals who decided to risk their reputation and jobs by standing up to the prior administration. Mary Shirley, do you have a rant and or shout out for us? Sure. I have um, both a rent and a shout out. Would you like both at the same time or separately? 
All right. So um, my rant is regarding the regression of compliance best practices with so many newly on the market roles reporting into legal for so many years, there was a lot of work done, which resulted in compliance departments becoming separate and independent from legal and compliance being able to report into the board, the CEO, both. Um, however, for some reason, in the last year or so, this is starting to be reversed. The pendulum is swinging back uh, to 10, 20 years ago. And uh, I've got a few issues with this. So the um, I'll, I'll list them for you, but I will note that there was a, a fairly prominent uh, role with an appointed CCO during the last week. And with no disrespect to this individual, again, similar to Francis Townsend, seemingly with no compliance experience, which I, I think is problematic uh, as it is, but it happens to be a company that has gotten into uh, compliance trouble uh, quite seriously in the past. So the three problems that I see with this is that it's unnecessary risk for the company. I can't think of any other department which so commonly has people saying, oh, why don't we staff this function with someone who's never done it before and put them in the top executive position? Let's do that. No, it only really seems to happen in compliance. The second thing is that it's offensive to the ENC community. For those people who have been practicing for so many years learning their craft, to see a company institute an individual who doesn't have that experience and say, yep, your job is so darn easy, we're going to put someone in the role who's never done it before, and they can hit the ground running because really the work you do doesn't matter and is super simple. And finally, thinking about the morale for compliance teams who are in this situation, there are employees working hard for years to build themselves up, get themselves ready for promotion, and then someone without experience is brought in from the outside just because they're a lawyer? How does that seem fair? What's that going to do for the team morale and employee engagement for those companies? So let's help that pendulum swing back, do whatever you can to get us back into the point where compliance remains independent from legal, um, far away from the risks of having to worry about the GC amending your public announcements and that you feel pressured to do so because they're your boss. And then the rave that I have is for the Netherlands for their newly proposed whistleblower law. Um, notably, there's no need to report internally first. There's no obligation there. And interestingly, um, there are a couple of compliance roles. So for companies who have so far avoided getting a compliance function, you know who you are, um, there is a need for an independent integrity coordinator to receive reports, although I would note that this role can actually be outsourced externally. And then there's also the need for a confidential advisor. So companies that fall subject to this law, if they don't already have an ethics and compliance function in place, um, they'll need to start preparing to uh, staff those up, ideally with experienced people where you can in the senior roles, um, and uh, keep an eye out for this uh, bill coming into effect. Thank you. And I have a shout out. I have a shout out to the governor of the great state of Texas. I could shout out to him for his criminalization of civil disobedience by certain legislators and signing arrest warrants to have him arrested outside the state of Texas and dragged back to the state of Texas. But I'm not going to shout out about that. I could shout out about his refusal to order um, masks uh, for and indeed prohibiting 
the entire government of the state of Texas and every municipality from ordering masks to be worn. But no, I'm not going to shout out about that and his love of personal freedom. What I'm going to shout out about is his um, fundraising this year, because what did he do? In the month of May and June, or excuse me, in June, he raised over $4.6 million. There's a special provision which allows fundraising in June in the state of Texas after a legislative session. But what did he do to get this fundraising? This was 50% above what he received in 2015, 15% above what he received in 2017, 30% above what he received in 2019. Did he pass legislation which benefited the citizens of the state of Texas? Actually, no. What he did was prevent any legislation going through to ameliorate and remedy the power outages, which came out uh, from the winter storm in in Texas. Gas producers got a pass from the governor. Uh, Price gougers got a pass from the governor. Out-of-state corporations who made billions off of this failure got a pass. And now making million-dollar contributions in return. As everyone knows, the FCPA prohibits obtaining anything of value. Well, what if you didn't get anything? Can that be a value? Well, in the state of Texas, that's a value. So to Governor Greg Abbott, good job, Greg. Well, ladies and gentlemen, this has been a great episode. I'm going to preview our next episode because we had an incredible dialogue among our panelists leading up to today that we decided rated or a separate podcast. So stay tuned for uh, one down the road that we're going to take up the topic and uh, debate solely. So lady and gentlemen, it's been great. And I look forward to continuing the conversation. This is Tom Fox again. Thank you for listening to this episode of Everything Compliance. If you have any questions or want to follow up with any of our panelists, I've listed their contact information in the show notes and you can reach out to them directly. I'd also like to tell you about a couple of new podcasts on the Compliance Podcast Network. The first is the ESG Report. The ESG Report uh, takes a look at all things ESG, from, but from the compliance perspective. So this is something every compliance practitioner needs to be aware of, and I hope you will check out the ESG Report. The second podcast I want to preview is a podcast commemorating the 20th anniversary of 9-11. So stay tuned for more information on the special uh, 20th anniversary of 9-11 podcast, which will premiere on the Compliance Podcast Network the week of 9-11. Everything Compliance is a production of the Compliance Podcast Network. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.